Today, we begin a new sermon series through the general epistle known as 1 John. So you can go ahead and turn there uh, if you would like. Um, We're going to be focusing today on 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Now, as you're turning there, this letter that's entitled 1 John in our Bibles is technically an anonymous letter. Uh, There can be very little doubt, though, that John the Apostle is the one who wrote this letter, this epistle. Externally, we have very strong evidence from the early church that attests to John's authorship. And internally, we can look at this letter and we can see much resemblance with the gospel of John, of which there can even be less doubt that it was indeed written by the by the Apostle John, by the beloved Apostle. And so we look at this epistle of 1 John, and we see the similarities with the Gospel of John. And one of the the similarities that stands out when you look at these two um, books side by side is that both of them have purpose statements in them, or a thesis statement that tells us exactly why John wrote the book. So the Gospel of John has one, and we see that in John chapter 20, verse 31, that says, these are written, he's talking about the book, everything he's taught so far, these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And then in this first epistle of John, John, 1 John, we have in chapter 5, verse 13, these words, John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. It's almost as if the epistle of John, the first John, is a follow-up piece to the gospel of John, kind of like Acts is to Luke. The gospel was written so that we may believe and thus have eternal life. And this epistle is written so that those who already believe Um, can have confident assurance of eternal life. So there are several themes in in the book of 1 John, or in this epistle called 1 John, but clearly the main theme of 1 John is assurance and confident perseverance. So that's why we've called the series, How Can We Know? How Can We Know? John is answering that question with this epistle. How can we know our sins are forgiven? How can we know we are in fellowship with with God and with our brothers? How can we know that we believe? How can we know that we have eternal life? Hopefully this sermon series will be used by God to to reinforce and reassure the faith of those in here who are already true Christians, believers. But for those who are not Christians or who have fooled themselves into thinking that they are Christians but are not, hopefully this sermon series will be used by God to awaken you to true belief. Now, who is John writing to? So before we get into reading today's passage, we we need to ask a couple of background questions. And so, who is John writing to and why? Well, part of the why we've already answered in that thesis statement, but we need to consider some other things that are going on. First of all, um, who is John writing this letter to? There is no um, direct salutation in this epistle, which makes it rather unique. But we can come to a reasonable conclusion that this epistle, like the book of Revelation, was a, an epistle that was sent as a circular letter to be shared amongst the churches of Asia Minor. And the main church of the churches of Asia Minor, 
sort of the, the, the hub of those churches was the church in Ephesus. Now, early church history tells us that the churches in that region began to struggle with some, some worldview and some teachings that began to emerge. Most notably, a very early form of Gnosticism was emerging in that region. And it seems that that is at least part of the reason that John is writing this letter. He's combating a heretical worldview that is causing some to stray from the faith and causing others to stumble in their faith. And so he's helping them answer this question. How can you know that your faith is is real? Gnosticism was an emerging worldview in the first century. It really exploded in the second, third, and fourth centuries. But it was an emerging worldview that had its roots way earlier, centuries earlier, in Aristotelian thought. And there were various faces of Gnosticism with, with a variety of nuanced views. But generally speaking, and this is, this is real general, generally speaking, Gnosticism taught that the unknowable God was far too pure and too perfect to have anything to do with the material universe, which was considered evil. So in other words, they created this, this dichotomy between the unknowable God and the spiritual realities and the spiritual realm and the material realm. And they said the spiritual is good, the material is bad. And so you can guess what this led to. It led to a denial of the bodily incarnation of Jesus Christ. Polycarp, who um, is one of the earliest non-apostolic writers that we, that we know of and probably was one of John's disciples himself, he said that there was a man named Serenthus who was causing problems in the churches of Asia Minor and was teaching that Jesus was born of natural human conception and he only became Christ at his baptism and then he ceased to be Christ right before the crucifixion. So he was the Messiah, he was the Christ, he was the Son, if you will, for only a, a little portion of time. But there was no real union there between two natures. And so this was going on, this, is a, this early Gnostic heresy became known as Docetism. And surely this was one of the dangerous teachings that was going on in the churches that John is writing to. So most likely John is battling some of these false teachings as he writes this letter. And beyond that, we can be absolutely certain from the letter itself that he was dealing with some serious schisms in the church. There was division in the church. We read in chapter 2 that there were some that were breaking fellowship with the churches and who were leaving. And all this had to leave the true believers in the churches worried confused, upset, and wondering, how can we know that we're believing the right thing? How can we know that we truly have eternal life? And so John, in a very pastoral tone, writes this letter to the churches in Asia Minor to show them the marks of true Christianity. Now, overall, the structure of the book of 1 John uh, doesn't follow uh, the course of of a linear dissertation like Perhaps the book of Romans. The book of Romans, you can just follow the thought and the, you see a very structured outline to what Paul is doing. And that's really not necessarily how, the, how 1 John is structured. Instead, it's, it has more of a circular flow with repeating themes, with key words and repeated themes like abiding, life, light, fellowship, brotherhood, love. Those things keep resurfacing as John um, goes through this um, letter. Now, one scholar put it this way, and I like this. He says that, that 1 John is more like a brilliant musical symphony than a tight legal discourse. 
So it's this beautiful symphony with these recurring themes and tones. So the letter may not be an incisive, systematic treatise, but that does not mean that it isn't very deep and profound in many, many ways. So with that background information, let's get started. Let's jump into 1 John. So please stand, if you would, as we read chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 of this epistle that we call 1 John. 1 John, chapter 1. Beginning in verse 1, and we stand at Harbin's in the honor of reading God's Word because we believe this is the infallible, inerrant Word of God being spoken to us. It carries the same authority as if Jesus in the flesh were standing right here speaking to us. John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the Word of life, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And we want to be a people who are sustained by your word. We want to be a people who have an appetite for your word. So we pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. These very deep and profound words that the Apostle John uses to begin this epistle. Lord, I pray that they would penetrate our heart in a very deep way. Lord, we need ears to hear, so we pray that you give us ears to hear. And I need a mouth to speak. So give me a mouth to speak. Lord, cleanse our hearts. Lord, if there be anything we need to confess to you, that we do that even right now, so we might be clean vessels for your word. And Lord, I pray that, that Jesus would increase in this sermon and that I would decrease, that all of us in here would decrease. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I have a picture here I'm going to bring up of these well-known towers in Malaysia. Have y'all ever seen those, a picture of those towers? Do you want to know what those are called? The name of the towers is the Petronas Towers. And, and there's the picture of it. Now, the Petronas Towers were built uh, in the early 2000s. And when they were built, they were the highest building in the world. Or it, it still is the highest twin tower structure. But just in general, that was the highest building in the world right there. But then in 2004, it was surpassed. And it's been surpassed many times since then. I think it's like number seven on the list now. So there's lots of taller buildings than the Petronas Towers in Malaysia. But the Petronas Towers still hold to something that's um, that's larger and bigger than all the other tall buildings in the world. The Petronas Towers have the largest and deepest foundation of any building in the world. Let me give you some statistics. The foundational raft is... 15 feet thick, made of 35,800 tons of concrete. Okay, wouldn't that be helpful, uh, Matt, right? That would be good for the business. 35,800 tons of concrete. Now, it has piles, which are these long uh, board um, uh, rods, if you will, that go deep down into the ground. There has these piles that were bored 114 yards deep into the ground. That's how deep the piles go. So you're talking longer than a football field. And, and those were then filled with concrete. 
filled with 470,000 square feet of concrete. To complete the foundation of this building, it took them 12 months. A whole calendar year just to get the foundation right. Well, what we have here in verses 1 through 4 of John, of the, of the epistle called 1 John, are the fundamental foundational truths on which this penetrating little letter stands. These are deep foundational truths that we must believe. Foundational gospel truths. These are the essential truths that, they're, that are at the heart of everything the Apostle John is going to proclaim in this letter. So I want us to see two things. Two things from the message today. First of all, the foundational message that John is proclaiming. I want us to look at what that, what that foundation is. How does he start this epistle? What are the foundational truths that we must believe? So we're going to look at that foundational message. And I'll go ahead and give you number two. And I'll come in and we'll fill in the bullet points as we go along. But here's the second thing. I want us to look at the joyful motive for why John is proclaiming these things. So we're going to look at the, the foundational message and the joyful motive. So we'll begin with that foundational message. But first, a little word on the structure of these four verses. Um, if you just look at your, your text here, look at those verses, verses 1 through 4. And I'm going to kind of talk about the structure here as you're looking at them. First of all, verses 1 through 4 in the Greek are one sentence. Just one very long sentence. Now you may have a translation out there that has it broken up into at least two sentences, maybe even three sentences. But in the Greek, it is one train of thought, one long sentence. The main verb of the sentence doesn't appear until verse 3. Look at verse 3. It says, we proclaim. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim. We proclaim is the main verb of the entire sentence right there. But it doesn't appear until way down in verse 3. In verse 1, if you look at it, there's four relative clauses that describe the object of the sentence. The object of the sentence is right there at the end of verse 1. The object is the word of life. The word of life. But before that, before he gets to the object, what it is he's proclaiming. Proclaiming is the verb. What's being proclaimed? The word of life. But before he gets to that, he gives us four, uh, four little clauses that are relative clauses, meaning they describe the word of life. And you see them there. That which was from the beginning. Each one of the clauses starts with the word which. Which we have heard. Which we have seen with our eyes. Which we have looked upon and touched with our hands. So there they are. Four relative clauses. Then, what makes it even more tangled up, in our mind at least, is in verse 2, John makes a parenthetical statement. He sort of breaks off his thought and gives us a parenthetical statement as he further expands upon the object. Okay, so in verse 2, that reads, The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testified to it, and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. Right there, that's a parenthetical statement. Probably in your Bible, you have two long lines right there before, before that verse 2 that help you see that that's a parenthetical statement. So then when you come to verse 3, he's picking back up the thought that he left off at the end of verse 1. And he's giving us yet another relative clause that also begins with the word which. Okay, And this time, that relative clause says this. That which we have seen and heard, and then we get the verb, we proclaim also to you. And then the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 consist of two purpose clauses that we'll look at in our second point. The reasons why Paul is giving us this, I mean Paul, John is giving us this foundational message. 
So the first thing I want us to see this morning is simply this. The foundational message that John is proclaiming. The first thing I want us to see, and this may sound a little odd, the message is a person. The message is a person. We just said a minute ago, the main object, and that's the reason I gave you the little grammar structure there, because we need to see what the main object is. What is John proclaiming? He's proclaiming the word of life. Well, what is the word of life? What is this word of life there at the end of verse 1? That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Now, when you come to that phrase, word of life, you've got two choices. You can either look at that phrase and think that's an impersonal phrase, an impersonal uh, object there. So word of life is simply maybe a description of the message, a title for the message perhaps that, that John is bringing. And so it's, it can be either impersonal or, and I think this is the answer, or that word of life means something other. It's not something impersonal, it's something personal. In other words, it's a title for a person. It's a title for a person, and I believe that's our only choice in the text for a couple of reasons. I believe word of life is a title, a personal title. It is a title for Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Godhead. This message that John is proclaiming is itself a person. In other words, Jesus is the message. Jesus is the message. Now, when we hear word of life, Opening up the first verses here of 1 John, it should cause our minds to immediately jump to the opening prologue of John's gospel that we read at the very beginning of the service today. John 1.1, 1, 1. in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word, the Logos, the Word was God. So the Word in John 1.1 1, 1 is indeed a person, and so is the Word of life in 1 John 1. The deep foundational truth about the message that John is proclaiming is not that he has some mere information. The deep, the deep truth of the gospel isn't just information. It's not a philosophy. It's not a feeling. It's not an exalted concept. It's not a vision. It's not an esoteric experience. It's not a moral idea. It's a person. It's Jesus Christ, the person. Furthermore, in that parenthetical expansion upon the object that we have in verse 2, we see this truth even more explicitly stated. Verse 2, the life, which is synonymous with the word of life, okay? The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which is another synonym for the object, which is word of life. Okay, so let me read that again. We proclaim to you the eternal life, and here's how you know it's personal, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Again, we see echoes of what? John 1.1. 1, 1. So Jesus is the word of life. Jesus is life. Jesus is eternal life. I think it should be capitalized in your translation there. Eternal life because he was with the Father in the very beginning. Jesus is life. This word of life, this eternal life that was with the Father, meaning it's a person, and it was with God the Father in the beginning. Jesus says in John 1.4, or the Bible says in John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. Jesus calls himself the living water in John 4, 10. He calls himself the bread of life in John 6, 35, and also in 6, 48. He is the light of life in John 8, 12. He is the resurrection in the life in John eleven twenty five. 25. 
The message is a person. Indeed, eternal life is a person. John 17, 3, an earlier portion of that great high priestly prayer that Deemer read from today. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Oh, friends, the, here stands the first deep pile of the foundation of true Christianity. Christianity, unlike any other religion in the world, stands and falls on a person, not a philosophy, not an idea. It stands and falls on a person, a carpenter from an obscure town in Galilee. We put our faith and our hope in a man, a God-man named Jesus Christ. And a true Christian doesn't come to Jesus. Listen to this closely. A true Christian doesn't come to Jesus in order to get something else outside of Jesus. Not even eternal life. A true Christian comes to Jesus to get Jesus. And because he has Jesus, he has eternal life. Jesus is eternal life. The Christian has life because he's been united to the one who is life. Colossians 3 Verse 2 and following. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the message is a person. It may sound odd, but the message is a person. Secondly, I want us to see that the person is the eternally preexistent son. The, the person is the eternally preexistent Son. Verse 1. That which was from the beginning. Now that phrase, from the beginning, is used eight times in 1 John. And it has a variety of different meanings based upon the context of each usage. Sometimes he's talking about the beginning of the gospel. Other times he's referring to the beginning of one's Christian experience. But here, at the beginning of the book... There can be no doubt that what John is referring to here at the very beginning is the beginning of all things. The beginning of time. Before time began. Before creation was spoken into being. And yet again we see parallels with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. The message John is bringing, this word of life, has deep foundational significance because the message is more than information. It's a person, and this person preceded creation itself. So John is is telling us what we must believe about this word of life. We must believe that he is the uncreated one, the preexistent one, the self-existent God. Yes, Jesus is more than just A man. Your Jesus is not a saving Jesus if he is not God of very God. One substance with the Father and the Spirit. John 5, 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. He is the preexistent word of life. He is the self-existent eternal life. He is the one from whom all things find their existence and in whom all things find their subsistence. 
their sustenance, if you will. He is, as Acts 3.15 says, the author of life. He is the author writing life into existence, speaking it into reality, giving it to whomever or whatever he pleases, and sustaining the very life that he gives. John 5.21 says that the Son gives life to, to whom he will. Now, I mentioned earlier, as I was giving some background, of this false teaching called docetism. Docetism, which John was battling, denied the incarnation of Jesus or the incarnation of Christ, but later there would emerge other forms of, of attacks on the incarnation. Uh, Ebionism, Arianism, which would all deny the deity of Christ. That's probably where we stand more today. People denying the deity of Christ is more the, the issue um, today. All heresies would find their root. All these early heresies, and I would say all heresies, period, find their root in a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. There are other Jesuses being taught in some of the churches of Asia Minor. And there are other Jesuses being taught in many of the churches today. There are other Jesuses just being taught in our culture today. The Jehovah's Witness Jesus is less than God and cannot save you. The Mormon Jesus, who is a created spirit brother of Satan, cannot save you. The Hindu Jesus that is just one of a thousands of gods cannot save you. The Muslim Jesus that merely sees Jesus as a great prophet cannot save you. The social justice Jesus that feeds the stomach while denying the soul cannot save you. The liberal Jesus that was merely a social revolutionary cannot save you. The American Jesus that takes the wheel to be your life coach cannot save you. The only Jesus that can save you is the one who is the eternally preexistent son who before time was with God and was God and who in himself is eternal life. That's John's Jesus. And that's the Jesus we must embrace. But there's more. <clears throat> the message is a person. The person is the eternally preexistent son. But also we see here the person is the historically revealed Christ. The historically revealed Christ. He is God, but he is man. The word of life, the eternal life, put flesh on. He broke into time and space, into human history. The immaterial God in the person of the Son put on material flesh that could be heard and seen and touched. Listen to the language here of verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, and which we have seen with our eyes, and which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And then in verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And then in verse 3 again, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. In other words, John is preaching the incarnation here in these first verses. Now remember, the Gnostics believed that the matter was bad, physicality was evil. They could not embrace the facts that John is putting forth here in these first few verses. Namely, that Jesus was God and man. Spirit and flesh. They couldn't embrace the doctrine of a glorious hypostatic union of the two natures whereby Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. But to make the point that the Son did indeed put on flesh, John uses sensory language to describe the word of life. Okay, They, meaning the apostles, heard Jesus and saw Jesus and looked upon Jesus and touched Jesus in the flesh. So Peter, he grabbed a real hand when he began to sink in the waves after initially walking on water. Jesus had real spit. I love this story. Real spit that he spit into the ground and made mud out of. 
and with real fingers took and put him on a guy, put that mud on a guy's eyes to heal his blindness. Jesus got really tired and laid his real head on a pillow and really slept through a really bad storm. John really leaned up against Jesus' real body at the Last Supper. And his real brow was torn by thorns. Real flesh was ripped off his back by the cat of nine tails. Real blood poured out of pierced hands of real flesh. The word of life put on a real body. And then that real body, as we sung about today, shed grave clothes and walked out of the grave and appeared to the apostles where he ate real food and let them touch very real wounds that he bore. So the senses mentioned here in verse 1, if you look at them again, they build and strengthen the apostles' case as he mentions them. Okay, To hear was good, but was not good enough because people heard God's voice in the Old Testament. So hearing was good, but it wasn't sufficient. Then to see was even more compelling, but, but still others had seen manifestations of God without God being flesh to have touched. Well, this, this was the conclusive proof. This was undeniable evidence of material reality. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. You can't, you can't touch an idea. You can't touch an ethic. You can't touch a vision. You can't touch a philosophy. This word touched is the climax of the four relative clauses in verse 1. In its Greek, it really means um, more, of a, more than just a momentary contact. I mean, here the word touch can mean anything to us. But really the, word, the Greek word means um, to, to grope or to feel in order to find something. It means to examine closely with the hands. It's the same word used in Luke 24, 39, when Jesus said to his shocked disciples after his resurrection, See my hands and my feet, that it is myself. Touch me, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Although this touching was the climax of, 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 the, first, of the first verse there, verse 1, the ultimate proof of the incarnation is the touching, but John seems here to, to put a special emphasis on the seeing. And the seeing is repeated here four times in these first three verses. Presumably this is because in order to be a witness in a court of law, you had to be an eyewitness. Peter makes a similar appeal in 2 Peter uh, 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. What they had seen with their own eyes... The apostles were making known. They were, this was a reliable, they were reliable witnesses. And John was saying that he and the other apostles had eyewitness proof that the word of life, the preexistent God, took on human flesh and entered human history. Verse 14 of that great prologue to the Gospel of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. But friends... We must understand that we have to believe the incarnation, the historical presence of Christ on this earth in order for our faith to really be considered true and real. Why? Why is the incarnation so important? Well, number one, we must believe in the incarnation because it is in the incarnation that God has most fully revealed himself to mankind. Verse 2 of our text today, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. It is precisely in the incarnation that God fully and finally reveals himself to man. John 1:18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He, 
has made him known. John 14, 9. This is Jesus' words. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians 1, 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2, 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And of course, God is the initiator of this revelation. The only way we can know God is for him to make himself known. And he has made himself most known in his son. Hebrews 1, 1. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications of sins, for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. This leads me to a second reason we must believe in the Incarnation. Secondly, we must believe in the Incarnation because if Jesus did not take on flesh, then you are still in your sins, and so am I. For the Incarnation was necessary for sins to be forgiven. Hebrews 2, 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Our sin requires death, and so Jesus entered into humanity he became a man so he could die for men. Philippians 2, 6, one of the greatest passages about the incarnation. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 8, 3, for God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. Sinful men needed a sinless man to die in their place, to absorb the wrath of God so that we could be with God, which leads to my third reason why we must believe in the incarnation. Number three, we must believe in the incarnation because it was necessary for us to be reconciled and for all things to be reconciled to God. Without the incarnation, there is no reconciliation. The material world, friends, unlike the Gnostics, we, we have to understand that the material world is not inherently evil, like the Gnostics taught. It is fallen, but it is not evil. And it is being redeemed. Revelation twenty fifteen, Jesus says, Behold, I'm making all things new. Romans eight twenty two. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. But it was mankind, it was humans, it was people who were the pinnacle of God's creation. And this is at the heart of his redemptive reconciliation. Colossians 1.19 For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Reconciliation. The incarnation is the key to reconciliation. And that takes me to our second main point of the day. The joyful motive for why John is proclaiming the things he's proclaiming. And it's simply this. The person who is Christ, the person can be, can be intimately known. Verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that, so that 
you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. The word fellowship here, koinonia, you're familiar with that word? It means partnership, mutual sharing, unity, supernatural oneness. This is the essence of what it means to be saved. Salvation is not merely freedom from hell, folks. It's fellowship with the Father. I wonder how many people come to Jesus to get out of hell instead of coming to Jesus to fellowship with the Father. We need to talk about salvation in biblical terms. We need to talk about salvation as you are gaining Christ instead of getting out of the bad place. And so we see here that that's what John desires. He wants to see people reconciled to God. I'm afraid that there will be many to whom Jesus will say these words. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, for I never knew you. You didn't come for fellowship with me. You came for a list of religious rituals. You came for some social good. You came for a thousand other reasons other than me. The message is a person. Remember, the message is a person, and so salvation is fellowship with that person. To be saved means to be made right with God and thereby be reconciled and thereby have fellowship with him. Notice the order here, though, verse 3 again. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, meaning the apostles. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son. So what is this telling us here? Well, I think it tells us this. There can be no fellowship with the Father and the Son that is not based upon the apostolic word and witness and message. We must have fellowship, union, and agreement with these deep foundational truths that John is giving us right here. We have to have fellowship with these truths. We have to believe in these things, have fellowship with John by believing in these things, if we are to have any sort of fellowship with the Father and with the Son. So to make that practical to us, it's simply this. Deep doctrine is key to deep fellowship. It's that simple. How many times, how many times does, does a church in America just, just push doctrine off to the side and say, say something like this, doctrine divides. So we're not going to worry about doctrine. We want unity. Love unifies. Well, friends, if we don't know what we believe, then our fellowship is standing on very shaky ground. And if we poo-poo doctrine in order to try to have people fellowship together in some sort of way, guess what? That fellowship will be only be on the surface, and it will collapse the moment there's turmoil. True fellowship, deep fellowship, has deep foundational piles that go way down into the ground that are in the bedrock of the gospel, what we're hearing here, what we're seeing here that John says about who Jesus is. Doctrine is essential to good fellowship. John 17, 20. Dima read these words earlier. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus' great desire was to see his people fellowshipping with himself and the Father, and then, of course, with one another. 
That was his desire. And so John simply echoes that at the very end of these verses we're looking at. John says this, And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Nothing gave the Apostle John more joy than to know that those to whom he preached and fellowship to whom he preached, had fellowship with himself and with the Father and with the Son. Now, I think we expect, as we get to the end of this verse here, this, this, this section here, we're expecting when we begin to read these words, and I'm writing these things so, uh, to you so that we're expecting him to say, so that your joy will be complete. Matter of fact, some translations have actually ignored the Greek there and actually translated it that way because they think it's just odd for John to say he wants his own joy to be complete. Just be like me preaching to you right now saying, guys, I'm doing this so that I'll be happy, so that I'll have joy. And you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with what John has to say or even for me saying that. I think... We need to understand that it's not selfish of John to seek his own joy when that joy he has in God's fellowship is made complete when others come to share in that fellowship. It would be wrong for John to be indifferent about other people's fellowship, to say, I don't really care if he or she has fellowship with God. That would be wrong. But John finds great joy in saying, I want you to have fellowship with me and with the Father and with the Son. So it's not selfish. Matter of fact, it's right to pursue your own happiness in the holy happiness of others. And I take that quote from John Piper. It is not selfish. Matter of fact, it is right to pursue your own happiness in the holy happiness of others. So let me draw this sermon to a close by starting to answer the question that serves as the title of our series. How can we know? Well, it starts with a good foundation. We have to believe in these foundational truths. It has to be a solid foundation like the Patronus Towers have. The veracity of your faith, the genuineness of your Christianity rests on what you believe about Jesus and whether or not you can agree to what John says here at the very beginning of this little book You understand that Jesus is the ultimate goal of our faith. He is the message. He is himself eternal life. He is God, the eternally preexistent God. And he took on flesh and became man, historically revealed as Jesus of Nazareth. And this sinless God-man died for sinners and rose again physically to reconcile men with God, to reestablish fellowship with God. And so all those who have faith in him, all those who call upon his name will be saved. So the first answer to how can we know is another question. Who do you know? Do you know the Jesus that John has just shown us? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I believe there are a thousand different Jesuses vying for people's attention in our culture today. There's a thousand different scholars gurus, talk show hosts telling us who Jesus really is. Oh, Father, don't let us go to anyone other than those who witnessed to the apostolic word, to your scriptures, to see who you say that Jesus is. 
So, Father, I pray that you would establish and reaffirm our faith this morning. Help us to believe these things, amazing things, about who Jesus is. Father, I pray that that would be the foundation as we move forward. We begin to ask questions like, are, are, we, are we confessing our sin? Are we, are we keeping the commandments? Are we walking in love? Are we doing these different things that help us answer these questions? How can we know? But Father, we can't dare go there first if we don't have verses 1 through 4 down. So God, I praise you and thank you for this foundation that John laid, this deep foundation on which we can now begin to build as we ask the question, how can we know? We pray all this now this morning, Lord, asking that you would work in us as we respond in song. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.